So, before we begin our study, let us bow our heads for a word of prayer. O Lord, grant us the spirit to hear your word and know the one thing needful, that by your word and spirit we may live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, Vicar is back, and Vicar is ready to teach, so bear with me. I'm sorry. All right, so as I understand it, y'all left off on day three, session one, day three, question 12. Does that sound about right? Excellent. So we will just jump right in right there. So... Right. So, so, question 12 says, Did the giving of the law on Mount Sinai replace the covenant that God made with Abraham? Could I please have someone look up and read Galatians 3, verses 15 through 18? Give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Thank you. I think St. Paul lays that out pretty clearly there. So God made the promise to Abraham and his seed that by the seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then at Mount Sinai, God makes the covenant with the people of Israel and gives them the Ten Commandments and gives them the various ceremonial and civic laws that they need to follow in order to maintain that covenant. What St. Paul is saying here in Galatians is that those two things are different. So... If God makes a promise to Abraham, who was before Moses, and then later on, he makes a law, he makes a covenant with Moses and the people at Sinai, does that mean God's promise, he's going to you know, renege or change the terms of agreement? No. And I think what is particularly key here is verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So, you know, if I make a promise to my wife that, you know what, I am going to watch my daughter and go ahead, go to Hobby Lobby, go wherever you want for a couple hours and just have some time off. But then the next day, you know, I go ahead and I say, okay, you know, let's hear some, you know, terms and agreements and please sign this form. I mean, should that really uh, change the deal, change the promise that I made to my wife beforehand? No, it, it shouldn't. And so what, what Paul is setting up here and what he's telling us is that the promise that was given to Abraham about the seed, which he says explicitly is Christ, is the gospel. And that the promise that that gospel, that all the nations would be blessed through Jesus, does not depend on the law. Yes. It's good that it doesn't depend on the law because we can't obey it anyway. Correct. We can't we so can't have fulfill it. depend on the promise that God gave earlier. Right. Because the 
the, the covenant, the law, has a list of, you know, it has a list of blessings and it has a list of curse. So if you do these things, you will be blessed. But if you don't do them, then you'll reap the consequences and things won't go well for you. And so, but God, God doesn't work that way for our salvation. He does it through promise. He does it through gift. Does anybody have any other questions or thoughts or comments about Galatians 3.15, which we just read? All right. Moving then into, quote-unquote, day four. Someone could read Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Fun fact, when vigor was confirmed many years ago, uh, this was my confirmation verse. So I like to think about it every once in a while. So when, in verse 16, it says, is the power of salvation to all who believe. And after that, to all who believe, could you pick it up one more time and finish out the verse? The, uh, verse 17. No, no, like, you know, uh, to all who believe first. Oh, to, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All right. Thank you. So to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Let's keep that in mind. And the uh, statement here says, you know, this is kind of his thesis statement for Romans. So taking that verse kind of as the, the thrust, the theme of Romans, what would you then summarize Paul's epistle to be all about? Do not be afraid to show that you're a Christian. Well, that is part, that is part of it. And salvation is for who? All people. Good. That's important because in... Uh, Question 14 here. It says, In the 1800s, Jewish scholars put forth what is called the two-covenant theory. Many Christian churches denominations have adopted this theory, which states that the Jews are saved by virtue of being children of Abraham, but that Jesus is the Savior of the Gentiles. So, what that's saying is that for the Jews... As long as they keep the law, they will be saved. But for everybody else, all the other nations that God didn't give the law to at Sinai, Jesus is their Savior. Based on what we just read in Galatians, what would you think, the one, what's one of the first big problems that you know, sticks out to you, the red flag that pops up when you hear this two-covenant theory? Right. So, first off, that if any group of people can be saved by virtue of the law, then what does God's promise to Abraham mean, ultimately, if you're saved by the law? Nothing, really. And secondly, when Paul talks in Galatians about how the seed is Christ, and he's referring back to God promising that through Abraham's seed, which is Christ, that all nations will be blessed by that promise. What's the second problem that appears to you in this two-covenant theory? Well, you can't keep all the law perfectly. I mean, the Jews cannot keep all the law perfectly. If that's what they 
You're, 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 getting close to, you're getting close to what I'm looking for. You're getting real close. In the question, it's the two covenant theory states that by virtue of being Jews and following the law, the Jews are saved. But then, you know, by being, virtue of being children of Abraham. But then what's that second part of the sentence in question 14 say? Jesus is the Savior of the Gentiles. Right. So we don't have to obey the law. That's part of the problem. But God said all the families of the earth will be blessed by your seed. That's the promise. So if Jesus is just the Savior of the Gentiles, or the Jews or anybody is saved by virtue of following the law, can God's promise of blessing to all people be kept? Or is that putting like a false division between them? Jesus is either the Savior of everybody or he's not. This is salvation to everyone who believes. Right. And so the Jews have to believe too. It's just that they may be first in line. Right, because they were the chosen people of God and Jesus was but born among them. on faith according to verse 17. Correct. Jesus is the Savior of all and it's not dependent on keeping the law. Salvation is for all people. The gospel is, for, is the power of salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So everybody. And so, but why do you think that the two covenant theory gained traction in a lot of churches? Because they didn't understand what they read. That's, that's a pretty straightforward way to put it, yeah. Also, because people want to want to achieve what God has promised, they want to do it on their own. So they didn't understand what they were reading. People want to achieve it. It's not very comfortable to tell people that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and. You know, it does sound kind of a little, it feels a little awkward saying that to uh, people who are descended from, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. And, you know, it was, you know, they, they've, had the, they've had the Torah, they've had the Old Testament for a really long time. It's, another, it's a way to try and kind of ease the conscience or, you know deal with the issue of well God says Israel's his chosen people but they've rejected him so how do we how do we, how do we deal with that well it's dealt with in the same way that every one of us is dealt with by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and so well, you know yes it's a new covenant in blood is what I would in other words, the Jews believe they have to be circumcised to be follow the law. And Jesus came and died for us and bled for us salvation. So that's what I was taught, that it was a, it's a new covenant, that, that you don't have to follow all their, their laws about, I don't know, not to eat certain foods and things like that. You know, because they have a lot of strict laws mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. Yeah, but Christians, we we go to heaven by grace through Jesus Christ. Everyone who's in heaven goes to heaven because of Jesus by grace through faith. And so, the point of this whole study is so we can learn about the feast of the Bible that God gave, but also their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus, and so with you know God's God's moral law like the 10 commandments that doesn't go away but things like circumcision animal sacrifices all those things when Christ has come he's the fulfillment of all those things that were foreshadowed and pointing to him so they no longer need to be done and so if there's a theory that says oh you can still get to heaven by 
you know, doing even a few of those things, then that's denying in some way that Christ is the fulfillment and the end of the law for all who believe. Maybe the question to ask is, Old Testament folks, why are they in heaven if they are? They never heard Christ. Well, why is, why is Abraham they well yeah they believed the promise that there would be a savior so a uh, Genesis fifteen six Abraham believed in the Lord and the Lord counted to him his righteousness what did he believe the promise that God had given him that in your offspring all the world would be blessed it's the same promise that's given to Noah why did God keep Noah alive so that the promise of Jesus could be carried on. It's the same reason that Abel, his sacrifice was accepted by God because he believed the promise God gave to his father and mother in the Garden of Eden that um, one of Eve's offspring would crush the head of serpent, uh, serpent Satan. And so they believe in Jesus even though they don't know the fullness of it, but they know God promised that he's going to send it. And that faith in that promise is the reason then that they're saved. Nobody in all of Scripture is saved by their works. And partly how you know that is because none of them are perfect. <laughs> Abraham, we talked last time, tried to take the promise into his own hands by sleeping with his wife's slave, Hagar. We have um, Noah. This We don't talk about this a lot, right? We paint Noah with the rainbow and the animals and the ark. But after they got off the ark, what did Noah do? got himself drunk and laid naked in the yard, right? Uh, he's sinful. He's not saved because he did this great thing and built the ark. He's saved only by God's grace. And that's the way it is for everybody. David, what did David uh, do that was sinful? Yeah, he had an affair, killed the woman's husband, and then took her as his own wife. Not his first wife, but one of his additional wives. Um, he also went against the Lord, counting the people uh, in a different place in Scripture. They're all sinners, and they're all then saved, not by their works, but by the grace of God. I, I'm sorry for interrupting there. No, I'm just trying to thank you for clarifying. Yes. I think the next question helps us. Yeah. So, could someone please read John chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And can someone else read John 8, 31 through 41? Or if you want to divvy it up, that's, that's fine too. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I will speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not, even, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Thank you, Pastor. So I want to deal with the longer text that Pastor just read first in response to 
the two covenant theory that we're working on and critiquing according to the Bible. So Jesus tells them, you know, those famous words, you know, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And how do they how do they respond to Jesus? They're not slaves of anyone. Well, first off, I mean, let's let's think back in our Bible history. Have the Israelites been enslaved before at all? Yes. Yeah. Who to first? Egypt. Egypt. So Egypt, and then at the time, you know, and skipping through many years of history. Is Israel an independent nation at the time Jesus is walking around? No. Who rules over them? Rome. Rome. And then before that, it was the Greeks. And then there was that one time where, you know, they went off into exile to Babylon. Yeah. So at face value, they have obviously been enslaved and occupied before. They don't like what... Christ is saying, especially when he says, you know, if anyone is, if anyone sins, he's a slave to sin. And that the words he speaks, he speaks from the Father. God. And so then, could I have someone again read the first part of verse 39 where, before Jesus speaks. So, 39a. Yeah. So Jesus says, I am I've heard what God has said, what my father has said. And then who do they respond as their father? Abraham. They are very, very insistent that they are descended from the right person. They have the right laws. They have the right rituals. So you know kind of like, you know, when you're in the family, you're in the family, right? As long as you keep the rules, you're good. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Who, who sets, who sets you, who sets people free? What sets people free? Jesus says it's the truth. And then going back to John 14, that very famous verse that we've all memorized at some point in our lives, Jesus says, I am the way to Right. So Jesus is the way to freedom. He is the truth that sets free. He is the life. And as we already learned from St. Paul, when God made the covenant and promised the, that Abraham's seed, singular, Christ would bless all people then that means you're set free through the promise of the gospel and not who your ancestor was or what works of the law you do. So taking Jesus' words and applying them to the idea that you can still go to heaven by keeping the right rules or being descended from the right person or whatever loophole we want to try and figure out to make ourselves feel better. Can, can, you, can you have life without Jesus? No. No. And this, this picks up uh, in question 16. What happens to someone who dies without faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior? John 3, 16 through verse 20. If someone could pick that up, please. Before we get there, or before someone starts reading that, are there any questions or thoughts at this point that you all want to address?
All right. If someone has John 3, 16 through 20, please. Thank you. I mean, Jesus is making it pretty, he's making some pretty big claims about himself and about how God is working through him. So, God loves the world and sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then in the following verses, how does Jesus contrast with that? If you do not believe, then you are condemned. Exactly. So it's not a, you know, well, you do your thing and I do my thing, or sit on the fence. You know, in another in another part of the Gospels, Jesus says, you know, if you were not with me, you know, you were against me, or if they are not with us, they are against us. So even if someone, even if hypothetically, someone was able to keep the law at 99% completion, hypothetically, would that be enough? No. The one percent would not. The one percent would still stick out like a sore thumb. And even more importantly than that one percent, does God save people through the law anyway, or does He do it through promise? Does He do it through gospel? So, the idea may have been well intentioned. The idea may have been a way to deal and try and smooth over, you know, competing religious ideologies being in the same community. There's all sorts of reasons we can say why the two covenant theory came about. But at the words of Jesus, it falls flat on its face. And so... The Bible feast that we will be studying in future sessions, they are amazing and wonderful and a little quirky in their intricacies sometimes. You know, at one point there's a feast where God tells them to go camping essentially, go out and build some booths and sit in them for a while to remember certain things. But as wonderful as they are, and as important as it was for the saints of the Old Testament to keep them, they were foreshadows. They were types of Jesus. And when Jesus comes and lives under the law, is born under the law, to live for us under the law, to die, those things are all completed in him and those things are no longer necessary at all because they were there to teach and prepare. Everything converges on Jesus. And whenever you try and get around Jesus, you're going to find yourself getting off the way that leads to eternal life. And the way is narrow and straight. Day five. Wow. Either I'm a good teacher or I'm going too quick. So if I need to slow down, tell me to pump the brakes, please. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Someone could look that up. 
Yeah, the uh, the handout is a little confusing sometimes. All right, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through forty. Someone has it and wants to read it. That would be great. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Thank you. Before we get into the meat of the question here, let's, let's set up the backdrop, so to speak. The Pharisee, at the time of Jesus, you know, most everybody who was a good Jew, you know, they went to the temple to offer the sacrifices to do what the law of Moses commanded as often as they could. But that being said, just like within Christianity today, there was a, there's a lot of different, I guess you would call them denominations. At the time of Jesus, there was a lot of different traditions or schools of interpretation. So the Pharisees were rather popular amongst the people. They were zealous for the law. St. Paul was trained as a Pharisee, and he said he was zealous for the law. Now, in other parts of the Gospels, when Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees, can you tell me some of the things that he critiques and condemns them for? Selling uh, sacrificial animals inside the synagogue? Well, that, that, is, that is a problem. That is a problem, but not, a, not, not exactly related to the Pharisees directly. Yes? Pharisees, when they uh, were fasting, showed everybody that they were hurting because of the fasting. Yep. And their clothes were different. And they wear phylacteries on their arms and the really long tassels. They make a big deal that, you know, when God says do this, I'm doing it and you better know it. And then, you know, they wanted to follow God's law. They didn't want to break it. So if God says, don't work on the Sabbath, don't work. What's work? Okay. But... You know, they gathered in the synagogue on Sabbath to read God's word. So are you telling me they couldn't they couldn't go to church? If they followed it to the letter. If they follow well, the word work doesn't specify that. So if I take one, two, three steps, okay. If you take four, now you're doing work. Or, you know, uh, for some of you who were here recently on a Sunday when Pastor Moline was talking about the giant vessels for the water, for purification rites, they were in big stone jars because you could, if they became ritually unclean for a stone jar, you could re, you know, you could make them clean again. You could re-consecrate them. But in a, in a clay jar, you had to shatter it, right? And Jesus also talks about, you know, washing your dishes and making sure your couch is nice. You know, you add on, when you tell people to follow the law of Moses, you add on your own laws and say you have to do it in order to keep God's law. So does that make sense? Jesus is critiquing them because they're saying that the laws of man are equivalent to God's law. And is that true? No. So that, in kind of a quick summary, is the big deal with Jesus and the Pharisees. 
Now, does anybody know anything about the Sadducees other than that they have another weird name? Yeah, some, some, a lot of Sadducees, a lot of the lawyers and the scribes would be with the Sadducees. They didn't believe in eternal life. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So, they didn't, so Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. They were a very populist kind of, you know, grassroots, everyday kind of, you know, movement. The Sadducees, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the books Moses wrote. That's the Bible. Also, P.S., well, I mean, the law and the prophet, the prophets are also there, but, you know. Also, they were the ones who primarily controlled the temple and the temple complex. So not, so not every priest or Levite was a Sadducee, but a lot of Sadducees were priests and Levites and people in the, like, the Jerusalem elite. The Pharisees, as we've talked about, are very big on following God's law, right? And God's law, and, you know, in the Old Testament, God repeatedly told the Israelites, you know, don't mingle, don't interact, don't marry and intermix with non-Israelites. Because they'll lead you away to foreign gods. Now the Sadducees, they were very insistent on their monotheism and worshiping God. But you know what? The Greeks, eh, you know, they got some they got some smart thinkers. The Romans, I mean, it's nice to be God's law says to be clean. The Romans can make giant baths. Why not? So the Sadducees were concerned. They, they were more amenable to outside ideas. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees were always button heads, right? Who would have thought that theologians would argue with each other? So all that to say, but when the Pharisees had heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees because right before this in Matthew the Sadducees asked about the resurrection, right? So, I mean, whether or not the Pharisees were right there or they heard it through the grapevine I mean, they're like, alright you know, Jesus put the smack down on our uh, ideological opponents but we still don't kind of like Jesus either. So you know, let's, let's, see, let's see where he's at, let's see what we can do so one of them, the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which one of the Ten Commandments is the uh, most, most important? Okay. Which one of the over 600 other Levitical and Deuteronomic, uh, the other laws that God gave Israel. Which one's the most important? Hmm? Well, I mean, who's my neighbor? They're not Israelite. Are they my neighbor? You see, they're asking them to trip them up because they're so concerned with is that the Sadducees? No, the Pharisees, because the lawyer, because in, in, in Matthew here, at 30, verse 34 in uh, chapter 22, but when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked Jesus. So they're trying to, you know, quibble about the law, and, you know, this is how theologians, this is how philosophers, this is how people talk, they argue back and forth to clarify, right? Didn't they also uh, settle disputes among, their, uh, among the Jews? 
Yeah, they had they have ruling councils, right? Yeah. They, so they got a lot of power. They did. Oh yeah, they did. So they asked him a question. What's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus tells them, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind." This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Loving the Lord your God. We got it, Jesus. Could you, say, could you say that part of the first three of the Ten Commandments and then love your neighbor as yourself as the rest of them? Yeah. That's how we teach it in catechism. The first three commandments are concerned primarily with the relationship, you know, to God. And the other seven are primarily concerned with our relationship with each other. But we just established that, you know, they're very concerned about being law-abiding Israelites. And the Israelites were given the law, not, not the Gentiles. So... It can can a can a Gentile be my neighbor from the perspective of like a Pharisee or someone? Well, in my Bible, it describes that, that um, they were champions of human equality. The, uh, um, they were champions of human equality. Mm -hmm. That's what it says in I would have to take a look at that to see exactly what what exactly they mean by by that and what they are citing. So they said the emphasis of their teaching was ethical rather than theological. Okay, okay. So in that sense I mean, that's one way to put it. Again, they were very concerned with keeping the law. And if you kept the law, then you were, you were good before God. But in order to be good before God, you had to know the law. And who had, who had the law? Who, gave, who did God give it to at Sinai? <clears throat> Moses, right? So the Gentiles weren't given it. So if... A Gentile, a non-Israelite, wanted to be good before God. What did he have to do in the eyes of a Pharisee? Follow the law. Who had the law? Hmm? The Pharisees. The Pharisees, the Israelites. So you kind of had to... You, you couldn't ethnically, but you had to become an Israelite in order to keep the law and be good before God. This is a much big, this is a huge debate. That's a lot of what the book of Galatians is about. Do you have to keep the law of Moses to be a Christian? This was a big deal in, in Acts and in Galatians. It was a very hot topic. And there's a lot of nitty-gritty, and there's a lot of arguments that are put forward in Scripture. But we already know that people are saved not by the law, but by grace. They're saved by... It's another G word. The gospel. Right. Yeah. I mean, all those other answers aren't correct. So... Point being is that they're trying to trip Jesus up in asking what's the greatest commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. And the deal is, your neighbor is whoever is around you, whoever you encounter. Because if God so loved the Israelites, that he sent his only son? That, that's not how it goes. If God so loved the Greeks, if God so loved the world, the world 
So if Christ died for the world, who is your neighbor? Anybody in the world. Exactly. And if you are saved, not by works, but by grace, and grace through faith in Jesus. And Jesus was promised to Father. It's like the song goes, Father. Maybe no. Abraham? Ah. So, everybody can. Everybody is saved through Jesus, or can be saved through Jesus, having faith in Him. And so, everyone is your neighbor. And everyone should have the opportunity to hear about salvation, not in works of the law, but through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, in question 17 here on day five, I don't, it's kind of worded a little strangely, a little awkwardly, you know, relate these commandments to sharing your faith with people. That's where I would put the period and not the comma, because the point is you relate it to all people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That being said, that being said, in question 18, it says Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was sent to the non-Jews, which, by the way, next Wednesday night, we will be observing the conversion of St. Paul at divine service. So you'll hear a bit more about how God chose him to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. But he was the apostle to the Gentiles, yet he expressed his love for the Jews in the books of Romans. Read Romans 10 verse 1. So let's go ahead and flip there. I'll take that one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set up, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Oh, no, oops, I read the wrong one. Yeah, you know. There we go. Try again. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So, you know, going back a little bit further, he's talking about the unbelief of Israel. Brothers, referring to the, you know, the people who are receiving this letter, you know, the Romans, the people who are in Rome. Brothers, my fellow believers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Israelites, is that they may be saved. So, what do we know about Paul? Was Paul a Gentile? Was he a Greek? He was a Jew, yeah. And we know from his own testimony that he was trained as a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? So it's not as though he, being the apostle to the Gentiles, is suddenly detached from his origin. If you here in America had not known Jesus and then you heard the word of God and the Holy Spirit created faith in you and you believed in Jesus, wouldn't you want your fellow countrymen, kinsmen, family, friends, wouldn't you want them to believe? Or would you suddenly feel like, well, you know, I don't know about them. You want them to believe. You want them to believe, of course. And Paul, as a good Jew, as a good Pharisee, he knows his Bible history. He knows God's promise to Abraham. 
He knows the covenant at Sinai. He knows of God's patience with the Israelites through rebellion and exile and, you know, failures of kings and judges and all the messy history that is sinful humanity that is found in Israel. He knows it. And he also knows how good the grace of God is. And he knows that in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, it's not just do this or else. In the Old Testament, there is so much grace and mercy. You, you hear about it in the book of Psalms all the time. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his So the gospel, the promise of Jesus is in the Old Testament. And if God really wasn't gracious after how many times Israel kept tripping up, if he, if he was not a merciful God, do you think Israel would even be around by the time Paul was born? He, the scriptures, God's revelation was given to the Israelites first. Because God chooses who he chooses, and this is how he chose to do it. And so Paul, being a Jew, wants his fellow believers, or not his fellow believers, his fellow countrymen, his fellow Israelites, to become believers. Especially because they received the scriptures first. It's right there. It's like literally putting it in your lap. Let's see here. we got a bit of time. All right. Could someone please read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 through 21? Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I become like a Jew. To win the Jews to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one of them. I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. Thank you. I know. Trust me. Okay, so let's have a brief grammar lesson real quick. Surprise. Paul uses a lot of participles. In the Greek, if Vicar were to sit down and translate it, sometimes he just goes on for sentences and sentences with participles. And uh, trust me, it's as much of a tongue twister and a brain teaser might be a nice way to put it, trying to do that in the Greek, let alone in the English. So I commend you for your endurance. So that being said, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. This whole section, this whole reading is used and abused for all sorts of foolish and silly reasons. Primarily, if you want to win people for Jesus, you kind of have to become like them. Now, for example, if Vicar were to be shipped off as a missionary to Cambodia, it would be a good idea for Vicar to learn as much of the language as he could, to understand their customs so as to not give unnecessarily offense and scandalize them before I can even tell them about Jesus, right? That's a pretty reasonable thing. So to win the Cambodians, Vicar must become like a Cambodian, right? A lot of the times it's taken out of context and used in a weird way. So like, for example, we really need to convert the cowboys. Then cowboys, they're always out there just with the cattle and, you know, I just, they don't relate to urbanized city culture. How could, how could we ever do it? So you know what we do? 
we create a cowboy church where we dress up as cowboys and we use them cowboy slang and we baptize you in a trough. You see what I mean? Like, there, there's a point where you're just like, okay, that's a little, it's a little ridiculous. But some places and some people do. But that's not the point Paul is making, let alone in the context of our question. You know, what's that phrase? When in Rome? Right. So obviously you don't compromise the faith. You don't compromise or go against God's word. But Paul, who is a Jew, when he's among his fellow Jews, you know, he's not going to do something that scandalizes them so much that they won't even listen to him about Jesus. Now, if he tells them about Jesus and Jesus scandalizes them, that's a different story. You see what I'm saying here? So when he's among his own people, he acts like them, which Acts, haha. If someone could read Acts 16, 1 through 3. That was an unintentional pun. I ask your forgiveness. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by brothers of Lystra and Antonia. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Thank you. Let it be known, this was published years ago. I did not have any input in getting my name in the study, let alone in the Bible. So, Paul wanted to take Timothy with him. Timothy's mom was a Jew, and his father was a Greek. In the diaspora, the spreading about of the Jews, especially after the Babylonian captivity, it was pretty common for a Jew to marry a non-Jew. So, he wanted, he was, Timothy was spoken well of, and he wanted to take him on. But in the area where they were at, there was still a lot of Jews there, and they, you know, I, I'd have to double check to see when it says here, you know, the Jews in those places, if that was referring to Jews in general or even like, you know, believers, I'd have to dig into that a bit more. But the point being is they were still very big on identifying themselves as a Jew. And among other things, especially for a guy What's the number, what's the, what's the big deal when you have a Jew, when, you, when a Jew, an Israelite would have a son? What was the big identifying factor? Exactly. And so when he was in those places and elsewhere, you know, going to the synagogues first, and he brought along Timothy, whom would be known as having a Jewish mother and a Greek father, would they even listen to Timothy, let alone give their ear to Paul? Because it's like, listen, this boy, you know, he's descended from Abraham, and uh, he's not circumcised. Do you even take the word seriously? So, what did Paul do? Adam circumcised. circumcised. Did he need to do that? No. No. But again, this whole question is about Paul's love for his own people in winning them to Christ. So he did not have to do it, but he did. You know, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, but a Christian is also a servant of all. Some guy named Martin Luther said that. Point being is, in the freedom of the gospel, in order to cause less of a scandal amongst the Jews, whom Paul was a Jew, and Timothy was also. He had Timothy circumcised. And then, if someone could read Acts 21, 17 through 26. I know we're a little over time, but we're almost there, and we're just, we're getting some 
some good reading and some good Bible study. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you by that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our custom. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Thank you. So, Paul's visiting in Jerusalem, and they're saying, Paul, you're doing some amazing work. This is great. But some of the brothers, some of the Jews who are believers among here, they've been hearing things about you that you're telling other Jews that when you believe in Jesus, you don't have to circumcise, you don't have to be Jews anymore. I mean, was Paul telling people that because of the gospel, ceremonial observances like circumcision were not necessary? Was he, was he, tell, was he preaching that? But was he specifically telling Jews that you don't, in order to be a Christian, you have to stop being a Jew? So there, there's a bit of some rumor, some slander going on here. And so the church of Jerusalem says, we're sending a letter to the Gentiles that, you know, Paul, you're right. They do not have to follow the law to be saved but we're asking them to abstain from sexual immorality because that's part of you know god's moral law that's something that doesn't just stop and they also say don't eat food sacrificed to idols or animals that have been strangled or you know drink animals blood things that would offend jewish believers in jesus and then they say Will you please go ahead and go fulfill this purification so that the Jewish believers among us, they would see that you're not telling them to kick everything by the wayside. And does Paul have to do this? No. But does he do it so that there won't be any scandal and so that they would actually listen to him when he preaches and teaches about Jesus. So, over big summarization. Are the feasts and ceremonies and civil observances of the law, do we still have to do those? No. What was their purpose? They were pointing to Christ. And so we can rejoice that God gave all these things 
these feasts, all these ceremonial laws to Israel to prepare them for Jesus. And we can rejoice that we can see that in the Old Testament when we read it, it's not as though it's a different religion or it's a different God, but that God is preparing his people in the Old Testament for Jesus. We can see Jesus in the New Testament and we can rejoice that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are freed from the burden of the law and that we are all saved by grace through faith because of Jesus. Let's close with the Lord's. Well, before we close, does anybody have any questions? All right. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.